1: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
0: And Cassidy Zachary.
1: Hello, everyone. Um, Today, we are so pleased to welcome Rachel Frost to the show. Rachel is a traditional hatter and historian who specializes in high-quality hand belted hats created using historical techniques and tools, and she is completely self-taught. She is motivated by equal parts curiosity and creativity, and Rachel has spent countless hours mining archives and museum collections to teach herself about the art of historical hat making going all the way back to the 16th century, which is pretty amazing, um, before she even began to hone her own craft. Yeah, Rachel has made an this incredible career out of her
0: beautiful hand-felted historical hats. And she has worked with everyone from museums and reenactors to theaters, films, and television companies. You can find her work in productions from The Globe, Hampton Court, at the v and on the BBC's Tudor Monastery Farm series. So we are so thrilled that she agreed to join us all the way from the Edinburgh countryside in Scotland to teach us about the art and history behind her incredible work. Rachel? Welcome to jest Rachel welcome to the show it's such a pleasure to have you here with us today
2: Thank you very much for
0: inviting me So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your craft and maybe what initially sparked your interest in pursuing it
2: Well I've always um, been a sort of creative person I was brought up in a quite an artistic family and so I've always had lots of sort of materials and encouragement to do um sort of creative, various kinds of crafts and, and creative activities um so initially i trained as a, a model maker for animation and i i felt i i wanted to become um you know, a, a puppet maker um, so i spent a little bit of time dabbling in that i worked for jim henson's creature shop on a, on a few films there and i did a little bit of model making for some animations um, but i quite quickly realized that um i wanted to do something that was a bit more a bit more rural based a bit more kind of traditional craft based and 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 less film based um so i started to dabble in different traditional crafts and i got very interested in the history of them of of various british crafts lots of textile based ones and and costume as well so i dabbled in i d- dabbled in a bit of natural dyeing spinning and then i discovered uh, felt making somebody bought me a book about felt making and um there was a section in there about making felt hats so uh, i i had a go at um at making a, a very crude felt hat by just gathering some some wool off the fences um in the fields around and about and um just fashioned this rather unflattering looking hat um but it, it was just such a magical process of turning raw fleece into into a, a functioning wearable hat um that it it just totally it sparked an interest and and that was kind of like the beginning of of w- what is probably a big chunk of what I do so I do met I do I I still do lots of different crafts but felt hat making or traditional felt hat making is, is kind of really what I'm most well known for
0: yeah and you're only one of if i'm not mistaken nine traditional felt hat makers in the world who uses this
2: traditional technique correct um I wouldn't like to put a figure on it uh, <laughs> of, of how many there are. So, I've recently, over the last sort of five years, started to look over the around the whole world to find out if there are any other uh, felt hat makers that are using a, a very a European traditional technique, um, which died out in Britain about 150 years ago, and which is what I've been working on for many, many years now to, to re- kind of resurrect and, and relearn. Mostly from from written references, so I then found um, that there were a couple in Europe that um, survived, who but they have since passed away. And now I've been looking around the rest of the world, and I'm finding there's a there's maybe mm, a handful of other hat makers in various countries, um, mostly in South America. So I I wouldn't like to say how many there are, but I just know that there are. Very, very few left in the world using, and I am talking about a very specific technique here of felt hat making. There's a lot of felt makers um, using or d- doing all sorts of wonderful things with wool um, all over the world, but this is a very uh, a sort of historical, traditional technique of hat making that I'm specifically studying and researching and, and, read and doing myself.
0: Right. And you said it died out over 150 years ago. So I'm really curious a little bit about how you pursued studying this and and kind of reviving the technique. Can you tell us a little bit maybe about what you learned about its history, but also how you taught yourself, what sort of sources you used?
2: So well, initially, I just kind of played around with um, just kind of very basic simple techniques um but i was getting very frustrated with the the end product of what i was making so it, uh, they were the early ones were quite were quite rustic quite chunky um and then when i started to look at original ones in in museums because there are still quite a few surviving uh, felt hats from going back to i think the earliest ones were 16th century um and the ones that i was looking at were, were very fine they were beautifully made and very even and very much like or um, a modern felt you would expect from a modern felt hat. But knowing that these were actually entirely handmade before that an era of of mechanization and, and that um I realized that, that I was something I needed to change the way I was making these felt hats. So then I started trying to find old manuscripts um and any documentation at all that related to the processes that were used prior to the 19th century. So, what happened in the in the nineteenth century, obviously, is the Industrial Revolution, which completely turned around the process of of making felt. So, my interest is everything to do with felt making before that time in Europe and particularly in Britain. So, there's not a lot actually on the subject of felt making. There's not really any books on felt hat making, and and I'm yeah, specifically, this is Britain that I was looking at at the time. So it was like piecing together a jigsaw with hundreds of pieces, and just which I'm still still collecting the pieces <laughs> for. So some of them would be like written references. Some of them would be they might some of them might have illustrations, and then looking at the original hats themselves. Yeah, there's a lot a lot of different things that that, that go into to trying to recreate the the technique. So a, a lot of the time I'll just be, um, I might find a a. a an illustration of some of the tools but it might not explain too much about how they were used so I would go out and make the tools in hope that if I just play around with them I might discover what they were for so that's it's very much kind of like experimental archaeology just kind of playing around and um, because there's nobody to actually learn from which is how you would normally learn some of that kind of skill and um, it would be something that's passed down through an oral tradition it, it's been a very slow process to relearn the technique and I am still learning now. There's still much to learn.
0: Yeah, which you document a lot of on your fabulous Instagram account. I must say that's been really a joy to to kind of see the ways that you have learned your craft and use your craft. In 2008, you received the Janet Arnold Award and I know that it was able to facilitate your access to maybe Um, extant examples of historical dress. Um, It got you into museums and private collections where you studied some of these felted hats up close. Can you tell us maybe what you learned from these surviving examples of hats? Although I think one of my favorite hats that you did was that swan hat that I think you said was based on a fifteenth century manual, <laughs> and it's literally a yeah, swan was, swan hat.
2: That was from <laughs> a fencing. It was a fencing manual of of all things. I mean, not not the most manly of hats. So yeah, just to describe the hat, it was a um, it was a, a red and a red and white kind of peak, slightly peaked cap with a a swan's head coming off the top as as the crown. Um, yeah, most bizarre there are some v- really bizarre hats out there um, and quite often the ones that survive in the museums are not typical hats um, so quite often the, the concealed items maybe they were hidden in a in a roof of an old house or something i think they were like considered good luck like they also hide shoes and various items of clothing so quite a lot of the hats are from that or they might be um, a particularly fine example or a particularly odd example. So you have to be quite careful when you're looking at um, extant examples in museums because they're not always a typical garment. Um, But things that I would be looking for, I mean, I didn't really know what I was looking for. So I kind of went in with uh, tape measures and scales. So I'd be weighing them, microscope, and I'd be looking and photographing and any clue at all that I could find to help me just to learn anything. So obviously I'd be looking at the styles, but I I was particularly interested in the way they were made. Um, And very often there wasn't there wasn't much to give away that they were handmade because they were so beautifully made that there's, you know, I'd be looking for flaws and and, and, any kind of irregularities. But often they were they were absolutely perfect. But um, it was the nearest I could get. To meeting a hat maker who was actually kind of having contact with these hats and um, it's almost like some kind of non-visible thread that kind of connected you to the makers of these hats from centuries ago it was yeah it's quite a it's quite an honor really to be able to handle a hat that's 500 years old it's almost like you can't really put it into words really the connection that you have with the maker but uh, it definitely helps
0: Right. And then you go into your workshop and you start experimenting with how to recreate this process, which is is so incredible. Your research is predominantly practice-based. You taught yourself how to do this 16th century felt hat-making technique um, through practice. And f- for those of our listeners who might not know, can you tell us a little bit about what felt is and maybe about your process from start to finish? You know, maybe an overview of your process you're intimately involved in every single part which is so wonderful you you know this begins with raising the very sheep whose wool you use <laughs>
2: yeah well i don't always use my own sheep wool but um, <laughs> there is something with well, all the crafts that i do one of the things that really one of the things that really makes me tick is to be able to take a, a raw material and turn it into a fine product at the end to to the extreme that I would get my own sheep and shear them and dye the wool but uh, I have to say I don't do that with all the hats that I do other because it would just take take too long (laughs) but um but I do you know when I'm making when I'm weaving I also make hats out of plant materials and I, I really love going out into the into the woods and just gathering the materials and collecting the dye plants so um I think it's really important to at least To to have an intimate knowledge of all the processes, even if you don't do them all the time, I think it's really, really valuable to have the experience of every process, even if it's just to be able to appreciate the skills of the different artisans that would have gone into the different stages of the hat. Uh, Felt is just a a tangled mat of fibres and animal fibres have a, a natural tendency to want to felt. Some of them will felt more than others in the same way that some people's hair n- knots quicker than others. Right. Mine doesn't <laughs> match very much, but some people's you just they have to brush it all the time because otherwise it gets really tangled. So obviously if you're wanting to make felt you're going to pick fibers that, that felt quicker or that, that have a more a, a greater tendency to felt. So um sheep's wool is very good rabbit fur is particularly good and then the finest uh fibers of of all really are the, are the, are the beaver they're incredibly fine and they make a very very dense felt that lasts a, a lot it's much more robust it lasts a lot a lot longer than than the wool and so to create felt for the felt for a hat you first of all you have to kind of open up the fibers and get in, get rid of any tangles that there are and you want to kind of randomly align them so they're just as random as possible. And there are different tools you can use to to do this. You can use hand carders that that um, spinners would use, um, and they kind of brush all the knots out. But the more traditional tool uh, for the hat-making process is something called a bow carder. And this, to describe it, it's, uh, it's about seven foot long. <laughs> it looks like a cello bow or fiddle bow. And it has a, a thick gut string stretched across it. And to describe how it works, <laughs> you—it's yeah, very heavy, and it's got a string supporting the the back of the bow. Imagine it's, it hangs horizontally over a table, and there's a string supporting it. And then the person um, that's that's using it holds it in the centre and plucks the string, the gut string, with a little stick. And it sets this string kind of vibrating, oscillating. And when you put place this string into the fibres, it has this effect of flicking them into the air. And they'll fly across the table and they land on the other side of the table. And what it's doing is it's it's opening up the fibres and making them really random, um, like a the fluffiest cloud you could possibly imagine. So you start off with this clump of fibre and you end up with this big fluffy cloud. And this tall... It does a fantastic job of, of making them as random as possible which is then going when you actually become to felting it you're it's going to give you a nice even smooth felt and nice and dense and the actual felting is done for hat making traditionally on a on a hot plate with water so you have lots of steam it's quite it's quite dangerous really i mean there's there's a lot of you know i'm covered in burns from doing it um <laughs> But you, you you actually physically agitate the fibers. So you rub them with your hands over a hot plate. So it's a bit like working in a sauna. And the more you rub, the more knotted they become. The fibers become tighter and tighter. So this bow,
0: I just want to go back to it for a second because I never would have imagined this tool until I saw it on your Instagram. That's how I first came to you. I saw this Image of you carrying it, and you know, I was immediately intrigued. Is and this is one of those tools that you saw in in the archive and recreated from historical documents.
2: Yeah, well, originally I didn't. I worked without a bow, and I just thought it was going to be too difficult to even start. I didn't even know where to start with it. But no instructions on how to use it. There, were, I was just seeing pictures of it in old manuscripts. But then eventually I decided that probably this might have something to do with you know, why my, my hats weren't coming out as well as I would have liked. So um, I I just made, at first I made a, a small one that was about about four foot long and it kind of worked. And I then I kind of put it aside for a bit for a few years and didn't bother with it. And then one year I decided I was going to make myself a proper one. And I studied, I found a, a video of a Hungarian hat maker from the, 70s i think it was and it showed his him using this bow so uh, i kind of freeze framed the video and used it as a kind of reference for the scale and and made myself a, a full-scale one and uh and basically for, for me anyway that that's that was a turning point was to to be able to master using this this tool has made a huge difference now i'm producing felt hats much like the ones that i had been aspiring to to make that I was seeing in the museums and then since then I've done a lot more research on the bow and finding other places that other people the hatters that used them in the past and looking at examples in museums and traveling to different countries because this bow was used all over well in many countries in Europe kind of simultaneously appeared all over Europe in the 16th century 15th 16th century so now I'm that's kind of like one part of my research is to find places where this bow existed uh, and compare them.
0: Yeah, and probably learn about how it traveled to all of these different places, right? I read an article in which you wrote that the techniques that came to Britain in the 16th century actually came with immigrant Huguenot felt
2: makers. As I understand, yeah, the French uh, moved to Southwark and London and brought the bow with them. And I don't think we had the bow before then. So I think any any fine hats, like things like the hat that cardinals would have been wearing before that date would have been coming but would have been made in in Italy or France um so the the skill was the knowledge was there before it came here and then i, I as I understand it probably went to uh, America in the sixteenth century with the Spanish probably took it there.
0: Yeah, which I'm glad you actually mentioned that because where I'm from in New Mexico, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, but the Spanish brought sheep into New Mexico with them when they came in the 16th century, and they brought all of their, their weaving and um, tools and techniques with them as well. So the tradition, and I'm sure felt making too, I'd be really interested to see how uh, far back felt making goes in New Mexico as well. Um, it's such a very, very time-honored tradition and craft that you are Um, Practicing in this very day and age, and so you've taught you fluff the fibers with your bow, then you felt them, rub them together, and felt it over this hot plate. At what point do you dye it? Because I think your dyeing process is really fascinating too, because you use all natural dyes.
2: Um, I do both. I do. I, where possible, I use natural dyes. Mm. Um, Well, that's that's interesting. If you'd asked me that three weeks ago, I would have given you a different answer than I'm going to give you now. So, you can dye the the fibers to start with as a as a in the fleece or you can dye the hat once you've made it into a into a felt hat but um i recently went on a study trip to mexico and I, I met a couple of hat makers there and i i realized or i learned that they they actually dye it somewhere between the two because what happens is that if you dye the wool when it's fleece it kind of felt a bit in the dye pot and that it's kind of already you've got you've got to get all the clumpy knots out if you dye it after you've felted it um the dye doesn't really penetrate through the felt because it's very dense so if you dye it halfway through the process when it's it's kind of looking a bit like a felt hat but it's not really tight then you'll get a much better color going right through the whole felt and color wise most hats historically are black you do find red ones and and lots of illustrations for the medieval period of different coloured hats, although you have to be a bit careful when you're using paintings as a reference because obviously a an artist's palette is different than a a dyer's palette, and so they the the artist might go, "Oh, I've got this fabulous green, it's so beautiful, <laughs> I must what can I do? I'll paint this hat green, But it doesn't mean that the hats were green. You, it's, you just have to be a little bit careful. But anyway, yes, there are different coloured hats. Generally, I use black, though. Um, but black can be made from many different natural dyes. Generally, they'll start off as a colour, and then you will over-dye them with an iron, what's called a mordant, and it, it kind of changes the colour. So you might have something that's red, add iron, and it'll turn to a kind of red-black. Or you might use logwood, and that'll give you a lovely purple. You add the iron, and it'll turn it into a kind of purply-black. So there's lots of different, many, many different recipes. And there are actually some um, old medieval um, written references to, to recipes that were used by hat makers to, to create a black. And they're often quite complicated, lots of overdying. Um, It's not just a simple, you know, like a dye on, stick it in the washing machine and out, out, <laughs> out comes black. It's, it's a very involved process with many different elements to it, different dyes that you would overdye. And then
0: when you, the final processes are, are obviously blocking and shaping the hat, um, can you kind of tell us about that final process? And I can't imagine that this is something that
2: happens quickly. How long does a typical hat take to make? The whole, well, the whole thing, it does depend on on the style of hat. So a small hat doesn't take anywhere near as long as a big one. So a very simple cap could be made in a few hours I've made a ginormous in fact I'm looking at the hat box here where I'm sitting I've got I made a bicorn from a an 18th century illustration that is um, four foot long wide that took me two weeks to make and um, but I would say somewhere generally an average kind of hat would take about two days. When you say that bicorn is that something that you shaped on a block or how would you even achieve something that large? Well, the size is more to do with the the making of the felt in the first place. So you can't like when you buy commercially made felt for making felt hats that that are machine made, they come a set size and you can shape that to many different styles, but you can't make it bigger. You can cut it down and make it smaller, but you can't make it bigger. So if you want a big hat, you have to make a big piece of felt in the first place so that's one of the joys of of what I do is that I don't have any restrictions of the size or the shape so I can make some fantastical shapes that, that wouldn't be achievable with a machine made piece of felt so that's one advantage and different thicknesses as well you they tend to come a standard thick standard weight and I can make them as thick or as thin and different bits of the hat can be different thicknesses
0: yeah I think that would be one of the funnest parts of what you do is is Bringing that shape of hat into being. Do you always know what shape you're going for when you start, or, or sometimes is there an artistic experimentation in your process?
2: I would say generally I I do plan I, I, well. Quite often, generally, I, I'm working to an illustration. They're reproductions of of orig- of old hats, so they have to look exactly at, as the portrait or the original. But more lately, I've been working on my own kind of more contemporary. Designs that uh, are inspired by historical, so there is an element of of kind of just seeing how the material pans out. But um, I do tend to I don't tend to work with sketches, and and I do usually know what I'm aiming to achieve. But felt is a bit kind of it does have almost like an organic life of its own. It does tend to (laughs) do a little bit what it what it wants. But for me, I I like to be able to I want total control of it before I allow the freedom if that makes sense, master it before you start exploring.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And you do not just felt hats, you weave them too, which these creations are just incredible and wonderful. Can you tell us about your rush plated hats? And also, I should say, you also have this 1830s men's jacket that you recreated. Um, Maybe not wearable, but it certainly is one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen. (laughs)
2: <laughs> thanks um so yeah going back to my my roots i I just like working with all kinds of natural materials i'm not just restricted just to to felt. Um, so I, I've done quite a bit of basket making, reproduction baskets, and then it seems logical to me to kind of somehow blend basket making and hat making. So I started to work I, I, I to find a material that I could actually weave a hat. So I didn't want to use willow because that's really hard. But there's a plant that grows in the rivers here, just a wild native plant called uh, Scurpus lacustris is its Latin name. Uh, and it's more commonly used for plaiting, for twisting and, and making the seating of chairs. But it, you can also weave hats out of it. It's wonderfully supple, but also robust at the same time. So I've I started making basically sun hats for for reenactors, and and then it's I started working on top hats, and then I to make the the hats you have to use the the very finest finest as in quality rather than how thick they are rushes, and I end up with a lot of a lot of wastage left over. Um, so rather than just put it on the compost, I thought, well, what can I do with all this? I know I'll make an 1860s coat out of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I took a, I took a pattern from um, from an old costume book and scaled it up to human scale, and then I I basically wove it as if it was a piece of tapestry, but using these these rushes that I'd I'd got from the River Thames. So you can wear it. Oh, you can wear it. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely you can get it on, but it's not very comfortable. Right. Although to be honest, those <laughs> coats from that period were quite well padded anyway, so they weren't very flexible. But I designed it more as um, as a sculptural piece. But I really like for me, it's very important that it it represented an original coat exactly, and it would theoretically be wearable. That was very important for me.
0: It's incredible, and all the variations and color that come through with the with the different very vari- reading is so beautiful, um so so beautiful,
2: yeah, really subtle, lots of this orange and greens and yellows that fade gradually over time, but they yeah, it's a really beautiful material, and
0: you've even woven it to look like it's almost somebody is wearing it because it almost feels like it's in movement and emotion, which is beautiful.
2: Yeah, I'd like to say that was intended, but that, that <laughs> is an example of one of, of where the material decides what it wants to do. As I as I wove it, it was like this is there is it feels like there's somebody in it. Yeah. So
0: you mentioned reenactors briefly. Um, your handcrafted hats are in high demand. They can be seen on everyone from historical reenactors to actors at the Globe Theater to productions of the BBC. Can you tell us a little bit about the clientele that you work with and what what
2: that experience has been like? The reenactment scene in in Britain has has just been amazing to me. Really, if it wasn't for them, I would definitely wouldn't have been able to to learn what I have done. So, although I'm self-taught, there's only so many things that I can make and have around me before you end up not being able to move in your home. So, I needed somebody that I could actually pass these hats and various things on to. So, reenactors are. A amazing bunch of, of people over here that really um they really appreciate how something is made perhaps in, in a way that other uh, areas don't so traditional crafts people they like the product but the reenactors are very interested in how it's made so they really value that you've spent it's all everything's been hand stitched or naturally dyed or you've researched the whole thing so they have enabled me to keep making and keep learning all the different crafts that i that i practice so the i guess that the reenactment seems very similar to in the states we have different sort of almost like different levels some reenactors are interested in the the fighting and others are interested in the what we say the living right. the living history <laughs> the dying history
0: I mean, it's really fascinating because we have a similar scene here in, in America and, you know, you have the Civil War reenactors um, and then, you know, the people that are working at Colonial Williamsburg, for instance. And I just think it's so fascinating to hear that a little bit about it, um, what this scene's like in England, because it's so fascinating to me. I've met so many wonderful people through Instagram, of all places, that are kind of living and breathing fashion history um, they use all of these old you know these traditional techniques to recreate um their garments and, and it's just really really cool and fascinating can you also tell us you've worked a lot with the Tudor tailors um, which is a, a really cool um company in the UK can you tell us a little bit about your work with them
2: so I was originally brought in to to work with the Tudor tailors on a hat pattern. So they were looking to reconstruct um, a typical Tudor knitted cap, and because of my experience as a felt maker, um, I was brought in to look at the process of of the fulling, as as it would be called for for the knitted caps, which is very similar to felting. But it, it's basically you would take uh, your knitted cap. And then you you felt it afterwards. So that a lot of the illustrations that of, of the knitted caps, so that like Henry VIII, you can't actually see that it's knitted because it's been so heavily felted or full that um that the knitting structure disappears. So um I was brought in to to investigate that um with, with an aim to with, to produce this pattern um that we could to share uh, that so that everybody could have a go at at, at recreating these caps. Um, but the more I got involved, the more hooked I got. I mean, we went to <laughs> thousands of these museums, and there's actually quite a lot of these early caps surviving. And uh, being a knitter myself, I got, you know, we were kept counting stitches and trying to work out how that how these people knitted these hats. So I would I was basically eat, sleep, breathing knitted hats at one point. Um I'd, I'd dream about it and wake up and be like, oh, I've got it. I know how they did that <laughs> bit, how they turned the corner. Um it was a very it was some very exciting times. Um yeah, so the the book I think is actually due out this year. Where we we started work on these on this knitted pattern like ten years ago and it's finally come to fruition. So oh, great. I yeah, I, I wrote the I wrote the the knitting pattern for the the book that's due out this year. So you'll all be able to go out and, and make your own knitted knitted caps and, and instructions in there on how to how to finish them as well.
0: Yeah that was my next question so I'm glad you mentioned it. It's where can our listeners get these books because the Tudor-Taylor um, they have various publications that you can get, so I'll definitely put a link to that in our show notes so that everyone can check it out. And you do not make just make these hats, I should say. You can also be found demonstrating your craft in head-to-toe, I think, 16th and 17th century attire at a working museum where you set up your historically accurate feltmaker's shop. Can you tell us about this authentic glimpse into the past? And it also appears to be a family affair
2: because there's some lovely images of yourself with your daughters. Mm-hmm. So because all my all the felt making that I do is based on on the methods that were made by used by the sort of 16th century hat makers it's actually no big deal for me to to do an entirely authentic demonstration of um, of felt hat making so the, all the tools that i use at home are 16th century but um you know i don't use electricity and i try and, and it's all as authentic as possible so there's a yeah an amazing museum down in the, in the south of england that has a 15th century uh shop um the, an original shop that's been taken down and reconstructed in in this in this museum location uh, and it's almost a spitting image of of a Hatmaker's shop from a 16th century uh, illustration that I have. So um, I'm really lucky that every year I go, I go there and I spend a week setting up my my hat shop in this in this building, and I can just do all the different processes within this in this building. And then the public come around and and they can watch and, and ask questions, and and it's just a fantastic location, uh, a real privilege to be able to kind of recreate this authentic atmosphere. And yeah
0: and And they're not just the you're not the only person there, right? There's a lot of people that are kind of recreating this like old sixteenth century what it might have felt like to be there in the past,
2: yeah, yeah, so the site's quite large. I'm not sure how many acres, but um there's dozens of buildings that have been saved from that particular area of of Sussex so they're they're not all medieval. So there's like there's Victorian as well. but they have these interpreters that that dress up in an authentic costume and and they kind of just it's like a working museum. so they have they have a mill where they make and they have a a bakery, they have a schoolroom and they've got woodsmen working and animals, like oxen that pulling it's actually like a working museum, and people it, it really does feel like you've just stepped back in time. And so, yes, great educational place to go.
0: And when you're dressed in, you know, the 16th century attire, you're working your 16th century craft, what does that feel like? And especially in a setting like that. I mean, obviously there's modern people around you, but that has to, that has to feel unique in so many ways.
2: I think it's like anything. You do get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I frequently these days I, I can't even be bothered to get changed into my civvies at the end of the day and i'll go into the supermarket still dressed in my 16th century outfit and not bat an eyelid and because you, you're just so used to it. It, it it just becomes part of you really but but certainly to start with it takes it gets it takes a bit of getting used to trying to be, you know working in a in a corset or bodies or whatever you would call them but it, it just feels comfortable to me i'm used to it so and what's the name of that museum It's called the Weald and Downland Living Museum. That's in Sussex. Cass, as you know, we are
1: going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more... For limited
0: time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at
1: rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries?
0: So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy
2: Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time.
1: And if you love the fillet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary.
2: Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba 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 ba. And
0: you're constantly honing your craft. You mentioned this earlier that you've um, been to Hungary and you've been to Mexico to visit master hat makers around the world. You recently, as you just said, went to Mexico to study under the master hatter, Lucino Martinez. Can you tell us about that experience? You documented it quite um, well on your Instagram. Again, our listeners will have to check it
2: out. But what was that like? Well, the whole, the whole project has been quite um, an amazing experience because after the two last hatters in Europe died, so there was one in, um, in Hungary, and then there was one in Austria that died last year. Um, I started to look further afield and discovered this is through YouTube and, and just and searching on the web. I found that there was uh, a few in, in South America. And I managed to, through Instagram, find a photographer who was based in Oaxaca and an art student who had also spent a bit of time working with this particular hat maker um, and managed to reach out to them. And they really... Um, amazingly got very excited about what I was interested in and agreed to to meet me out in in Mexico um, to go and visit this old hat maker. So I did some crowdfunding, which was also a very valuable experience because it reached out to so many people all over the world that um, they became aware of the project and what I was doing, because that's part of the problem is that I can't, it's very hard to explain what's so important and significant about this particular technique of of felt making but anyway this crowdfunding enabled me to do this and lots of people came on board and and really helped the whole project pull together so uh, it was about six weeks ago now i i went out to to mexico met up with these these two guys and um and we went and met lucino who's uh 78 and he's from a long line of of hat makers in a town where there were hundreds of, of felt hat makers in his lifetime there were and he's now the very last one so he he showed us the process that he uses which is very very similar to how the hats were made in Britain and and all over Europe so it was he was actually the first um, hat maker that I've ever met so uh, although I've emailed the one in Hungary and I've been to his workshop subsequently but I never actually got to meet him so it was quite an amazing experience to actually spend time with him I mean he was also very moved that i that we had come, travelled so far to come and, and, and honour him and his craft. So there, there were a few tears shed I on can both imagine. sides. <laughs> uh, it was, yeah, it was very moving and very uh, informative as well. Yeah. And so we took lots of photographs. Um, there's many more actually I need to put up on Instagram, but I hope that I've managed to make, we've made a good job of, of documenting his skill and his craft and for future generations is the plan.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, and hopefully inspiring a new generation of hat makers to pick up that technique and help to preserve it. Wow. And I have to say that you also created for your trip a journeyman uniform, which was wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about what a journeyman uniform is?
2: So many years and years ago, when you would have a master felt maker, so in Britain, a felt maker would actually be a hat maker. Um, Because in Britain, felt making really was only about hat making. It it was quite a, it was an established, very respected trade. You would spend seven years being an apprentice. And then once you finished your apprenticeship, you would then go on and become a journeyman. And you would travel around working onto different felt makers to extend your um, knowledge. And also you would be working, it would be like cheap labour, cheap but good labour for the for the masters. So I decided it was, although this hasn't been a, a thing in Britain for probably since 150 years, I, I thought it was about time to, to revive it. So, and seeing as I was going to be traveling around or my plan is to travel around and find different hat makers. Um, I, I don't think there were ever any journey women, but I think I could, I'm going to, be, <laughs> we could rectify that. I'll be the first journey right. woman. <laughs> um, so but there's not really very much known about them in, in, the British tradition, but in Germany um, they still there are there have been a couple of journey journey women milliners, and I think there's even possibly one at the moment doing her journey years, which I think is a three years and a day or something, and they have to travel around with like no money and just being put up by kind people that, that feed them and and look after them and then they just spend different time you know working at different places. but one of the things is that they have a uniform. So they're easily identifiable, really, just so that people can, they know who they are and, and, and they're, they're sort of respected. So I made up my own journeyman's outfit. It was kind of loosely based on the German tradition, but with a bit of sort of 18th century Britishness to it. Um, and I made some, I made shiny buttons out of shilling, silver shillings. So the idea is that should you fall upon hard times, you can exchange your buttons for whatever you need, whether it's food or or accommodation. Wow! And I made a special hat out of beaver fur. I made myself a very fine hat. I couldn't go on a journey without a hat. So
0: yeah, and there's these wonderful images of you that you took before you left with your bow. I don't think you
2: took your bow though, but um, just I start- didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I did wear my uniform every day when I was in Mexico. Wow. But surprisingly, nobody batted an eyelid until I came back to Britain and then they were, I got some funny looks. But in Mexico, nobody nobody seemed to uh, <laughs> to mind. They were very much more open about what you look like there.
0: <laughs> so I just have one or two more questions, actually, before we go. Um, this has been such a wonderful treat. Thank you so much for being here. I was pleased to see one of your most recent posts supporting the hashtag, Who Made My Clothes?, why is hand craftsmanship more important today than ever?
2: For me, in in Britain, I I feel that we are still suffering from the negative effect effects of the Industrial Revolution, so we we still have this sort of idea that something that's handmade is not as good as something that's that's machine made, and I I kind of I have this theory that in the sixties, when um nineteen sixties when sort of like with hippie movement and people got into a little bit more into sort of handcrafts, there was this kind of, people felt it was important to to show that something was handmade. Um, so you'd go for something that was like rustic and you know hand, hand spinning had to be kind of knobbly and, and, and have had lots of character. And people don't really kind of, there's less interest in making something that looks perfect and machine as, as good as something has been made on a machine. Because of that, traditional skills kind of got lost. So people don't even bother trying to make very very fine lace anymore, or spin super fine, um, or do tiny stitching. They they just want it to. It's got to it's got to be shouting at you, obviously, that it's handmade. So uh, that's one of the things that I'm really interested in is is trying to either Regain or or keep the traditions of of something that's very beautifully perfectly made, I suppose that's only one aspect of it, but people are starting to appreciate crafts as a sort of as a therapy that it's that it's good for you to just to keep your hands you know and to slow down and not be always rushing around. And and take yourself off the computer and get out there and and just make something, even if it isn't. It doesn't have to be beautifully perfect, but the actual process of making something is a hugely satisfying activity and something that is definitely a good thing to do. The hashtag, the who, Who Made My Clothes. Yeah, I think it's just really, really valuable to appreciate the processes that go into making everything that's in our lives all around us and um, and that's you know the fashion revolutionism um, it's obviously it's doing lots of amazing things but um that's one of the aspects for for me is that it just it makes you think about stuff the stuff that we have around us whether it's fashion or whether it's um, you know just all material objects and 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 not just like throwing things away valuing things you know even if even if you bought it from a shop it's still some quite likely that somebody's made it it doesn't have to be um you need to respect the work that goes into something and value it and not just throw it away.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the fashion revolution is so great too, at reminding us that actually all of our clothes are handmade. There's people, you know, across the world that are making those clothes. And so that movement is really, you know, about slowing fashion down, countering fast fashion and reconnecting people with the clothing that they put on their body because, when you're talking about the 16th century, people only had a few pieces of clothing unless you're astronomically wealthy, and you cared and took care of that clothing, um, and you understood the worth of it. And of course, like you just said, the beauty and the artistry of making something with your own hands um, is just so important. And on that note, I just, you know, we have a little many of us, I should say, there's a lot of people still out there working and we're so grateful to all of you. Many of us have a little bit more time on our hands than usual these days. For those who might want to look into learning this craft or just learning more about it, are there some resources that you can suggest until your book comes out?
2: Well, I haven't actually written a book yet on uh, on how to make felt hats, so you'll have to wait a, a while, <laughs> quite a bit longer for that one. Um, I mean, felt making has undergone a huge resurgence in the last sort of, well, since the 1960s, but probably in the last 20 years, particularly so. Um, so there's loads of resources out there that will, um, could, to inspire you, you know, on YouTube and that, the process of felt making. But maybe sort of scarves and you can paint. But I've got a friend, Moy Mackay, who does beautiful, she uses fibres like um, like paint. So she does beautiful Scottish landscapes using using coloured walls. So that, yeah, there's loads, but really just doesn't have to be just felt, just anything, just get out there, whether you're making food or something, just, just slow down and just make something, make a work of art out of everything that you do.
0: Rachel, thank you so much for being here. This is such a pleasure. I know our listeners are going to immediately get on your Instagram, The Crafty Baggers, um, and then of course your website, which is thecraftybakers.org. Thank you so much for being here, Rachel.
2: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Rachel, thank you so much for being here, Cass. How incredible that Rachel is keeping these hat-making traditions alive, right? Right? And and maybe she will just inspire some fellow milliners or aspiring milliners to do the same. And, and she's actually a woman of many hats. Pardon the pun. Uh, (laughs) or not (laughs) right depending on how you fall on that side of the fence um the crafty beggars is not only the name of her historical hat making business but also her band that performs period music on a variety of instruments and rachel plays the pipes and also kind of like a little bit of an anachronistic you know instrument or lesser known instrument known as the hurdy-gurdy, which is a stringed instrument, and the sound that it produces is created by turning a crank. And of course, you know, the band obviously performs in historical dress casts. Of course. You know. And Rachel actually comes from this incredible family of talented
0: makers, April, so it's no wonder where she gets all of this talent and creativity from because just last year, her father, Martin Frost, was awarded with an MBE from the Queen of England herself. MBE is, of course, the member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. It's quite a distinguished honor, and it really celebrates Martin's contributions to the art of vanishing fire edge painting. Have you ever heard of this? I
1: didn't know the term, but when you kind of like put this forth, I, I I've seen images of it. So like I immediately knew what it was, but I had never heard it called that before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had it's never heard so of it. Cool. It's so cool. Um, I guess I might have seen it before, but not really understood exactly how much incredible artistry goes into this. So he has been developing this craft for 48 years. And so what Vanishing Fire Edge painting is, listeners, he actually paints a scene on the edge of a book the edges of a book. So when the book's closed, you can look at the edges. But that's only one type of this painting because the other is when you do it on f- the fanned pages so that you fan it out and then paint it. So you can literally only see the painting when you fan the book. So it's like magic. There's also two-way fire-edge painting. So he'll paint one painting on one way and then flip it over and paint it on another way. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I, my mind is blown. Between yeah. him and Rachel, I am just so incredibly inspired. And it's so cool to see these artisans practicing these age-old crafts today in such a beautiful way. For the occasion, Rachel made him a book-themed hat, of course. Yeah. And if you want to check out his work, I definitely think you should. Um, and that's at Forage Frost one on Instagram, F-O-R-E, Edge Frost. And then foragefrost.co.uk, you can also find his work there. So check it out. Such a cool family.
1: Yeah, and perhaps it's only a matter of time before Rachel herself is bestowed with the MBE honor for her contribution to the, you know, continuation of this historic hat-making technique and tradition and craft. Absolutely, You can follow Rachel on Instagram at crafty underscore beggars, plural, and also org, And we will, of course, provide links in our show notes to this week's episode. Well, that does it for us today, Dressed
0: listeners. May you consider incorporating some historically inspired craftsmanship into your wardrobes next time you get dressed. Remember to tune in this Thursday for our latest edition of Fashion History Now, where we share with you things happening in the world of fashion history today. And we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com.
1: You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. Dressed underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle and you can follow us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. If you have a moment to rate and review us on your podcast sharing platform, we would much greatly appreciate it. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly
0: Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. And of course, to you, our listeners, we love you and hope you are well.
1: Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Everybody in your
1: crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're
2: the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time.